Welcome to Artist of Camberville. A quick note, the following episode contains descriptions of child sex abuse. Listener discretion advised. Okay, so, um, it's going to sound like farts. (laughs) Later when I'm editing this, I'm like... Hey everyone, welcome to Artists of Camberville. I'm here with Bettina Birch. Bettina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You can find out more about Bettina's work at bettinabirch.com, also on Instagram at Bettina Birch. So yeah, let's just get started. Hello, I am a Somerville artist, who uh, an artist full-time who works at Harvard part-time. Uh, where I have had um, two consecutive shows in 2010 and 2011, um, where I frequently coordinate art exhibits and sometimes curate. Um, My full-time job, though, is painting, in particular commissions, specifically all kinds of beings. I've been doing, um, to support myself the last 20 years, commissioned portraiture. You do most of your business or you do a lot of your business through commissions. So how do you get those commissions? So a variety of ways. Um, a lot of it is uh, client referral, social media, um, word of mouth, local businesses, open studios. Uh, which is where I saw you. Which is where yeah. you saw me. <laughs> so Bettina, I want to talk a little bit about your story. Have you sort of talk about it? And just to give um, any our listeners some context, two days ago, um, you had called me um, in the afternoon and uh, basically had said that you, um, I had sent you the pre-interview like I do for everyone that comes on this, and you had called me um, two days ago and just said, I want to start my story earlier. And so we had kind of had this conversation. This was an opportunity for you to own your story and do some good um, by sharing your story. Hopefully do some good, yeah. Yeah. And I'm so happy that you called me two days ago because it really gave me an opportunity to not only like think about us sitting here together, but also sort of do some research to sort of help provide some context and to sort of lead you through. So with that in mind, um, you know, start us off wherever you want to start us off and let's just kind of talk about it so thank you um (laughs) uh thank you danielle i um it's actually a celebratory story even though at first it may not seem like one i guess i'm going to take a moment to share a poem that i wrote the poem is called breath breath we are born with it breath and error is handed out at birth. That pillow, I think when I floated up, it was like I was hanging with the angels. At three, I got to hang with angels, thanks to that pillow you put over me. So thank you for reading that. Thank you for writing it and reading it today. Can you just kind of start at the beginning? So, um, I, to, tell, to talk about the experience, um, I was uh, 
from the time I was born until I was 13. We had a pedophile in our family. Um, he was an uncle. I was the oldest of three, um, and he had one son, and his son and I, I think kind of got the brunt of the abuse. It, um, was he a, a real uncle, or was he just kind of like a family friend that, that he, you guys called an uncle? He was um, my dad's sister's husband. Okay. So he was not related to us, but he was um, he was definitely an uncle. So, um, and they had a swimming pool, so we would go to their house to swim. Mm-hmm. I'll fast forward. I'm 19 in college, a small Midwestern liberal arts school, majoring in studio art with a minor in English. It's winter and I've just survived two car crashes getting there. Um, And I'm getting these weird headaches that feel like they're going to kill me. I'm waking up from doing homework paralyzed and unable to move. I find out later it's called hysterical paralysis. What's wrong with me becomes a question I ask myself repeatedly when I'm alone, too afraid to let anyone else know what I'm experiencing. Then one day it happens. The room spins upside down and I am lost in a wave and crash of dimensions and perspectives, not sure what's what or who or how. A complete breakdown of reality, which leaves me physically where it found me but mentally starts a cycle that would last the next 30 years of intense panic attacks. 10 years later, I had moved to Boston. I was living with my boyfriend and we were doing peer counseling on early sexual memories. And suddenly my childhood revealed itself and the mystery of why I had had these attacks my entire life unraveled across my life. We split up. 10 years later, I was getting married to a bartender. We drank a lot and we divorced. But another 20 years passed, standing in place and found um, an awesome therapist. (laughs) And this brings us to almost here. So the panic attacks um, stayed with me for all of these years. In fact, I now know that these um, psychotic episodes occurred throughout my childhood as well. They were quite debilitating. Um, How so? Well, I would sweat and shake all night long in college. And I kept having, um, I had recurring nightmares when I was a kid that there were black holes in the floor and that the floor when the lights would go out would fall out from underneath me. So that's kind of what started happening. I was like living that hell. I felt like I was just going to keep falling. There was nothing to catch me. There was nothing to support me. I really struggled with talking about it to people. I thought, um, I didn't have words either. This was in the 80s, and we didn't really have the words panic attack. Mm. We didn't really um, know very much about what I was going through. The only thing, I guess it was one day I was home for the holidays, and my dad was watching some war show, 
and I saw a scene from this film where a guy was walking through a tunnel and the world was spinning and time was getting weird and warpy. And I was like entranced because I was like, that man's going through what I go through. Mm. So then I started saying I'm in shell shock, but I didn't know why I had shell shock. And then I was like, I mean, I asked myself so many questions like, am I, am I schizophrenic? I went through a whole period that I thought I was schizophrenic. When I first got into therapy, um, they misdiagnosed me. They told me that they thought I had a mild bipolar disorder, that I was cyclothymic. Um, I went on an antipsychotic medication, but it just never really felt like I was getting the floor under me. Yeah. You know, that floor was still dropping. This story kind of, my life has kind of been like this weird puzzle um, where I've been trying to understand myself and why I've had the feelings and the the, the intense attacks. And um, I don't really want to say this, but there were times that it almost became hallucinatory where I felt like I was in some kind of crazy netherworld. Um, but beginning the story... This uncle was in my life, lived near my parents from the time I was born. Beginning to piece it together, when I was eight years old, I walked in on him with my sister, who was three. And I was scared to tell my parents when he was there, but I told them after he left. Mm. And uh, he, my sister was with her pants down and... You know, he was, I knew it was wrong. Yeah. Um, somehow I managed to block all the stuff he did to me, but because it was her and I felt fiercely protective of her, I immediately said something as soon as I could to my parents. So that was noted. I didn't actually remember anything until my 20s. When I did remember, um, I was in this therapy group. I never understood why when she would talk about closeness, I would get these weird headaches, but we were talking about closeness. And then she said, you know, an early sexual memory could be anything. It could be, you know, a color. Um, it could be a street noise. So I flashed to colors and the colors were Christmas lights. And all of a sudden, just like that, I remembered the pillow that was over my face and that I couldn't breathe and that I didn't know what was going on, but there was a voice. And I think the voice was saying things to my brother and me who was in the room, mm -hmm. um, who was very close to the TV, watching TV. It was Christmas time. And those were the lights. There was a Christmas tree in the room with us. Put the pillow over my face and I don't know what else because um, that moment, at that moment, I actually left my body. And so part of the panic later was that when I would have these panic attacks, um, when I had this psychotic break, it would always feel like I was floating out of my body mm -hmm. every single time. And I kept thinking I was going to die. So I kept experiencing these attacks as I'm dying. 
So it was extremely scary. Do you know when this, when you're remembering this, the scene at, uh, at Christmas, do you remember around how old you were? I, so that's right. I pieced this together. We moved from this house when I was four. I had just turned four. Okay. So I, I am guessing I was three. If I could remember that far back at two, I mean, I, I think that actually stuff was going on similar yeah. to this, but I think that it was this moment the rest that I remember about it is um, that I was trying to take, I think I was, try- I was sleeping. So there was an incident when I was eight and it was Christmas time and I was lying similarly on a couch looking at a Christmas tree and all of a sudden the lights started going really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know why, but I suddenly felt a wash in emotions I didn't understand. Um, And I guess I started screaming because at this point my mom came rushing over. And then everything she said to me sounded like she was yelling at me. So I think it threw off my perception of like I lost my perception of reality in these moments. Yeah. Like a war vet veteran would um (laughs) i'm sure any war veterans listening to this that have like shell shock or whatever they call it now ptsd PTSD, would be able to relate to the symptoms because they're so disorienting and so deranging they rip reality away from you and you are left just with an uncertainty of what to even, I mean, I'm over it now, but I still have sweaty palms and feet talking about it. So when you, so, so you were about three, your so uncle I'm three. Put, put a pillow over you yeah, and you, um, and it sent just to be clear, um, he was sexually assaulting you. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the part that I actually have blocked. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming then maybe at that time, your uncle told a story, your parents kind of believed it and sort of... My uncle said I was a liar when I was eight. Yes. Let's go back there. When I was eight um, and told that story, my uncle did shoot back with, she's, you know, a liar. Um, I did get bullied after that as well um, by my cousin and my brother. (laughs) Who were also undergoing the same thing. Who were undergoing, I think he set them up to say stuff to yeah. me. And, um, I mean, that's so all that was, part of the grooming process. Well, yeah, apparently what they do, what, what pedophiles do um, that I know to be true is, I mean, my uncle favored me, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a kid. He seemed to give me attention that no one else would. He would play with me. He would like do tricks with me. Mm-hmm. So the way that pedophiles get you is that they will um, do something where you f- do something that's intentionally wrong that you like, that you enjoy, so that they can kind of use that against you. Yeah. So it's. It's a hard one. I mean, what was that? What What was the? 
I think yeah. for me, it was like occasionally give me massages. I mean, there were things that he did that I'm sure were pleasurable, like throw yeah. me around in the air or, mm-hmm. you know, there's this one creepy family photo of me sitting on his feet, which he has raised in the air. He was a bodybuilder and he was a Hollywood extra. So he was always like, you know, doing things for his physique yeah. and um, he told us ghost stories and showed us inappropriate magazines and um, tried to get us to drink wine when our parents weren't looking. <laughs> so when you called me two days ago, you know, I, I remember being in the car. I was on the way to pick up my daughter from, from camp and um, obviously uh, was was really affected by your story and definitely cried (laughs) because I you know I just I felt just awful for you that you kind of went through this I don't think that I don't think that anybody needs to be a parent to sort of really feel affected by your story but I I think being a parent kind of put something a little extra on it because I do have two young kids I have a five-year-old and an almost two-year-old and so, so you told me your story. I started doing some research, as I mentioned. And one of the things that surprised me, even though it's not really that surprising, is how common this is. And I realized that um, I know so many children. I have so many friends who have kids. And I realized that this is going to happen to some of them. Just, just the statistics are there. Um, one statistic I read uh, was even as high as in one in six boys. You know, I, I think it's so sort of important to tell these stories and to talk about it because it just shines a light in the darkness. And I think one of the things about you and your story is you you experienced this trauma as a child. There's a lot of other people who are experiencing trauma as children, but there's still a road of hope to come out of it. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily like a death sentence, right? No. So the more that we talk about it, I think the more that we take this... It incredible... feels like a death sentence. I think it definitely can feel... I like... think it, just as a parent... It, it, if that happened to one of my children, it would feel like a death sentence. And I think um, the more light we shine on these stories and talk about it, the more shame that we take away from it. And, it, you know, one of the things that I had read, this, the, the, the same article I mentioned, where the woman, uh, the wife of a, of a child sex abuse um, survivor was talking about it. And he's like, well, I don't really like talking about it because it makes everybody else uncomfortable. Which I this is very true. Yeah, which I totally get. It's not like something so you that yeah you we, feel like yeah we want to talk about. Yeah. But at the same time, it's happening. It's incredibly common, and I think that if we the more and more we talk about it, the more and more that we and share stories like yours, the more that there is a better paved road towards sort of forgiveness and hope and and coming out of it. But I I have read that it's one thing that's actually helpful for PTSD survivors to be able to keep telling their story Mm -hmm. because when they do, it's kind of like each time you take a lap around that block, 
your um, a little piece of the terror is dissipated. I guess I spent a lot of my life feeling like I was pathologized, like they didn't, you know, even the doctors that I was going to didn't understand the trauma yeah. that I had gone through. Um, and really, it was a chance encounter with this friend, um, a non-drinking friend, um, who kind of helped me understand that what I was going through was just trauma not a sort of mild bipolar disorder. Well, I, and I have to imagine, I know we, we touched a little bit just sort of on the uh, affecting nature of your divorce. I have to imagine that when you have gone through such trauma at a young age, that all other traumas that you experience in your life, it, it must feel so much more intense. It must have such a bigger physical effect on you. Do you think that's true? Well, I do. I think that um, the divorce, actually, the marriage was a choice that I made that was... So when you're dealing with involuntary panic attacks on a daily basis, you aren't really centered enough to be making clear decisions mm -hmm. and I think at a certain point after my divorce I realized that and I kind of just stopped trying I stopped trying to you know I, I think I just wanted to get sorted on what it was and get centered so it's a little embarrassing to say it took 20 years to find my center but um, it took 20 years to find my center and really it came with the help of a really good therapist who um, was able to start me on a therapy that uh, for the first time in my life, I'm not having, um, I don't fear having an involuntary panic attack every day. Yeah. I will say too, um, to, to bring the art piece into this. I've always been an artist. I've always been interested in um, painting and seeing the world and trying to put that vision out. What really decided art for me um, was that when I was going through these incredible attacks, the thing that kept me present was painting. So painting was really the, the, the key for me to survival. Art and artists helped me. I discovered bebop jazz. Um, I was in school right near St. Louis and just would listen to this really awesome jazz show. It just felt like I was getting the nurturing and the comfort from that. And then also discovered David Hockney and he's been an inspiration for me and my work through most of my career as an artist. So um, one of the things that we kind of talked about a little bit, which I definitely want to hear you mention, is that you were able to find a road towards forgiveness for your uncle. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I found um, forgiveness for everyone involved. I guess um, in preparing for talking about this um, today with you, I 
realized that because of this experience, so when, so, so going to my artistic process, when I paint a portrait, um, I've always felt, or I've, I've kind of like a seer, um, when I get an image of a face or animal, human, I get kind of a sense, a, a kind of hit of that person and who they are, what they're about. And I don't know. So I, so in remembering all this other stuff and um, all these experiences, I guess I realized putting full closure on this experience that that three-year-old who left her body um, and touched the veil because I went through that experience, and I think this is also very common when people have had near-death experiences or experiences where they've left their body, that they have a kind of connection with an energy, with an understanding, an intuition um, that maybe they wouldn't have had normally. And I think that is the gift if you will, that mm -hmm. this experience that I've realized that this experience gave me is, is this sort of sensitive awareness. Um, like increased empathy. Increased towards... empathy. So I think one of the things that is really remarkable about your story and kind of where you are in your life now is the road that you took to forgive everybody involved in this story and really kind of find the peace within yourself. And to people who are struggling with this currently, to people who maybe their children will unfortunately go through this, I think that's a really, really important part of your story to tell. Like how, how, how were you able to sort of forgive him after everything that he had done to you? Um, so the way that 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 came to me was hearing the story of a man who was a pedophile and he um, I was raised um, as a Christian scientist and he was a Christian scientist and he 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 prayed about the fact that he had these inclinations and was able to find a healing um, from that and I guess until I... Was this later in his life? Or was this... Um, I think he was a young man okay. when he started realizing that he had these inclinations. And I think that's when I first realized that maybe pedophilia and, and the proclivity to want to be with or touch young children is something that's like a disorder of sorts and that the people that have this that may be aware that they have it and may not know where to go in society because we ostracize the pedophile so thoroughly mm. you know I think until we're able to as um, and I don't remember who it was that said it, but it's a quote that I've come back to in my life again and again. Um, it's a Frenchman who said it, if all were known, all would be forgiven. 
And that has really been a mantra for me, not just for self-forgiveness, but also for understanding and having compassion for those around me. I watched a documentary on pedophiles that all live together. Um, it's in Florida. <laughs> and they, they have very beautiful, amazing, dedicated staff that help them work through without the shame, work through these desires. And um, I think that until we're able as a society to stop putting each other in boxes and walling each other off from, you know, from each other, from ourselves, that these things, these kinds of things will continue to happen. Um, you don't, you don't win a war by going to war. Mm. You really only ever win anything by putting out what you hope to get back. And I think love and forgiveness going out is going to mean love and forgiveness coming back. That said, the situation with my uncle, when I realized that this was perhaps aha, not something he chose, I, I felt compassion for him and the fact that he spent, you know, the life that he did and I think, you know, I'm sure that there's pedophiles out there that are like just going to embrace, you know, embrace who they are and not have, you know, necessarily any kind of anxiety about it. I'm sure they're out there and he may have been one of them. Um, I do know that he died destitute and alone um, in his 80s with even his own son having disowned him. So it's a sad story. I do want to say there was, and I know there was, a lot of good in my childhood. It's just that it was kind of dragged down by this sordid experience. I guess I'm a big believer in opening the boxes fearlessly, letting the things come out, understanding what happened, then moving on. I think that as an artist, how I've grown is that as I've begun to unveil um, and just accept the history and stop, stop fighting it and trying to hide it, that it's making me realize I can also do this with my work. And so I have a couple um, different ideas that I'm working on developing right now. I'm kind of seeing this whole podcast and this unveiling of my past as a sort of rebirth. Um, it, it feels a bit like a birthing canal, like, except in this case, I'm very aware of the <laughs> feelings of kind of coming into awareness um, and uh, talking about um, this story. It's a little bit of a sweaty process, but... <laughs> I would say that art has been my meditation. Um, it's been a, it's been a necessary, it, it's it's integral part of my life, and um, art has been my savior. <laughs> if I, you know, I'm a spiritual person, but if I had a religion, it would it would be definitely involve art. Um, so. 
art has been my savior. And I, I think that when I was 19 and doing all kinds of exploration, you know, with the, the humanities, I knew I, I loved writing. I knew that I liked to act. I had staged plays when I was a kid and, you know, done everything from costume design to script writing to, you know, um, choosing the cast and then production of the play. Um, so art was always kind of like a go-to place throughout my childhood. Um, we didn't have much TV. My parents didn't really believe in it. So it was like we were left to our own creative devices, our own imaginations, um, which was a really beautiful part of my childhood. In addition, my parents chose to send us to a school, this private school, um, where we got an amazing education. So they valued education over pretty much any other thing. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that was really first and foremost, and I really appreciate that, that gift. So um, I digress, but with painting, when I was 19 and having these debilitating attacks, I found that the way out of the attack, the most, I, I guess, profoundly direct way to get myself back into the present, into the moment, into my body would be to paint. Um, I, I loved it so much. I loved the, I, the, the act of seeing and then taking what I saw and putting it on paper. I, I, when I was a conduit, when I was plugged in that way, I was able to escape the pain of the past. I was able to ground myself in the present. Um, so it, it really was kind of a meditation for me. Is it um, helpful to sort of focus on other people's stories and to, with portraiture and sort of distract from your own? So with, with, that's a very interesting question. With portraiture, because of my history, I don't know that I've always had like an easy relationship with pe people. There's that kind of wariness that you have um, when you don't have boundaries as a child or when boundaries get kind of messed with. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of an unguarded, you, you feel a little bit on guard. But the thing that was beautiful about portraiture is it gave me that opportunity to have a relationship with the person that I was painting. And so when I would first get a, a, a portrait, um, an animal or person, um, and in some cases, um, you know, I had some pretty, in some cases there were Polaroids that were like not even very much information, but it was like maybe a family's beloved dog, you know, from 20 years ago. Can you please paint this? Well, anyways, with each portrait, I... Um, I, I sit with them and work to unstrange the stranger and just kind of get to know them, start having a kind of conversation um, with, with that image, like um, I mentioned earlier, just kind of see into the image 
And I love that unstrange the stranger. I really <laughs> like that line. Thank you. <laughs> become you know I guess it becomes a bit of a love affair for me Mm -hmm. so that I am looking um at this being and getting to know them and then finding love for them and then I start painting and it's really at that point that I feel that I'm ready to start painting when I'm painting, I'm not thinking, what is this client going to want? What is, I'm, I'm not really thinking so much about the audience. It becomes a very private relationship between me and that image mm-hmm. and, and the person or being that I'm painting. And together we dialogue. We start a dialogue. When I start working on the painting, it begins a dialogue. And much the way authors say that, you know, sometimes they create characters and then the characters start to tell their own story. Yeah. (laughs) This is how I feel a lot when I'm painting someone because they start telling me what they want. And um, that may sound kind of crazy, but I mean, it doesn't matter whether they're a dog, a cat or a human or a bird or a fish. There's a dialogue and I am taking cues from them. When I'm finishing the piece, um, I really only feel that I've finished it when I feel like the story's been told that, that we were sharing with each other. And, uh, and then I let go of it. So kind of the last question that I want to ask you is uh, thinking about people listening to this and you know, maybe they're going through something similar in their life or, you know, maybe not, I don't know, but is there maybe one thing that, that you want to tell them that you want them to know? I, I would say, um, to realize when things happen, when memories occur, if you can treat them like a wave, even if it feels like a tsunami, hang on and have vast amounts of love and patience for yourself and the feelings that you've got to know that you're not alone. One of the ways that I got through my, my, my tsunami was just grabbing hold of whatever inspiration I could find in life and hanging on to it the way you would if you were in a tsunami. And don't lose faith in yourself or in the universe. Um, And work, personally, I would say, work to, to ground yourself in whatever way is going to work best for you. I'm definitely not an all things work for all people mm-hmm. person. I think that it's a vast variations of ways that people find recovery and help. I started a gratitude journal um, a couple years ago. I started just waking up every morning, training myself around gratitude. If you can find a way to be grateful for anything, whatever it is, in my case, it was Jazz and David Hockney, 
grab hold of that, hold firm, and believe in yourself and the universe. (laughs) That's beautiful. Good job. Bettina, thank you so much for being here and just telling your story. It's really been amazing and hopeful, and I think it's going to really impact people's lives in a positive way. I really do think that. I hope so. Yeah. Thank you so much, Danielle, for the opportunity to tell my story and for this birth canal experience, (laughs) rebirthing experience. Of course, it was my pleasure. For more on Bettina's story, check out the blog post she wrote on daniellehmonroe.com and check out her art on Instagram at Bettina Birch. And while you're there, you can follow me on Instagram at Republic of Camberville. Be sure to come back next time for a special preview episode of Republic of Camberville. Shah Jahan Khan will be performing the story Salsa Holico. Till then, bye.